Hey, this is Pastor Jason Deshaw at Redeemer Church in Fridley, Minnesota. Welcome to our podcast. My hope for you is that this message helps deepen your relationship with God and leaves you feeling encouraged. For more information about who we are, message notes, and discussion questions, visit us at RedeemerMN.org. Good morning, church. We are in week five of this five, or week four of this five-week series going through this incredibly practical wise book from the New Testament called James. Each week I've encouraged us to read one chapter and then together as a church so we can go through it. I'd drop me an email. Let me know what God is saying to you. I'd like to hear from you. Uh, let me begin by just saying it's so great to see all of you here this morning. Reminds me of a silly joke. So an irate customer happened to be named Jason, uh, called his newspaper dispatcher at midday and he was irate because he demanded to know where his Sunday newspaper was. Jason replied to the dispatcher, today is Saturday. Your Sunday times will be delivered tomorrow as usual. After a long pause, Jason on the other line said, ah, that explains why no one is at church service this morning. <laughs> I know, silly bad joke. Glad we don't have that problem. Great to see you. Before we jump into today's text, I want to start with a preface about the kind of conversation that James is having with us in this book. One of the things I learned early on in marriage is that there are two basic kinds of conversations. There are feeling conversations and there are problem-solving conversations. And so often, like many husbands, I would get those backwards. There were times when Lynette would share about her day and what she was going through, and I would immediately jump into fix-it mode. And I wanted to help her and problem-solve. And she would get frustrated and say, I don't want you to fix it. I just want to be heard and supported. Then there were other times she would tell me about a problem, and I would say, oh, Lynn, I'm so sorry to hear that. What a bummer. I feel for you. And she would say, I don't want to be heard. I want you to help me with this. All of you married couples are nodding out there. Well, for today, the text from James, it's not a feelings conversation. It's a problem-solving one. James is going to be very practical and at times direct. Some of his words might even strike you as, gosh, Pastor John, that seems a bit harsh. But James does this because he wants us to help solve a key problem in our lives. We all have problems we wrestle with, right? We all do. We have struggles, we have difficulties. Some of you might be facing some right now. For some, you might have walked in here this morning and something's going on at your work or your career and it's a struggle. Maybe your big problem this morning has to do with the relationship. Maybe you walked in and you have a financial or a debt issue that's causing great stress. Maybe you have a habit or a struggle that you can't break free from. Maybe you came to church this morning and you're thinking, I just want to forget about my problems and hear the pastors talking about my problems. James is writing to a community that's wrestled with many different issues and we've talked about some of them. We looked at them. We talked about anger and how to handle that. We talked about how to speak and when to to speak and when to listen and how to speak. We talked about superiority or, or greed or hypocrisy. And in the text for today... On the surface, it seems like James is just confronting the church about their conflict, their divisions that's a, that, that has arisen. But he's going to diagnose something much deeper in their lives. And it's going to apply for us today as well. He's going to make the claim that you have a problem bigger than your current problem. No matter what's going on in your life, you have a problem that's bigger than your current problem. And James starts with this question in verse 4, or sorry, chapter 4, verse 1. He says this, what causes fights and quarrels among you. In other words, why the fighting? Why the bickering? One of the rampant issues in the early church was the conflict that would arise and the divisions that would take place 
as these new Christian communities popped up. Rival factions would form around different teachers or different interpretations of scripture or different views of what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. Thank God we don't have to deal with any more of those, huh? Right? But James, you have to realize, was probably the most significant leader in the early church in Jerusalem. That's where he grew up. So he would have known what the issues were. James is asking that question, what causes fights and quarrels among you, rhetorically. He could have probably spoken into their issues and solved their disagreement. Because if they were fighting about what Jesus had taught or what Jesus had meant when he said this, he was Jesus' brother. He could have spoken into that with authority. If they were fighting about whether or not Jesus was truly raised from the dead because that was an issue in the early church, he was an eyewitness. He saw it happen. He could have spoken into that, but he doesn't. In fact, James doesn't seem to be too interested in why they're fighting at all. He doesn't say, tell me about the issues. He doesn't say, tell me about the debate. He doesn't make a judgment call about who's right or more biblical. In fact, he does this really interesting thing. He answers his question with another question. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? If you've ever been with somebody who answers a question with another question, you know that they're making a point. And that's what James is doing here. He's making a serious point. He's saying, your conflicts, your fights, they're not just about what's going on out there, your circumstances. It's not because someone has offended you or maybe their theology seems a little askew. James is saying there's something else going on inside of you that you need to look at. In other words, your problem just isn't out there. Your problem is in here. And James is refocusing their attention on their inner life. Let's look at verse 2. He says, you do not have... So you kill. I mean, that sounds harsh. But biblical scholars say that Jesus, or James was not speaking metaphorically. In the early church, people were getting so angry with each other that they were resorting to physical violence and even murder. So James continues, you covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and you fight. In other words, you have these appetites, these unmet desires in you that are driving your life. You may not even be aware of it. This is kind of true for some of us today. We have this common belief that our actions are driven by what other people do or say to us. It's why people say things like, you make me so angry, or that person really brings out the worst in me, or I would never have said or done that if they hadn't done it to me first. And James is saying the reason you have these conflict is because you have these desires. You envy and you covet. There are things that you want that you don't have. And James is saying it runs so deeply, you might not even recognize it. A goofy illustration of how this works, kind of just a how apart human nature works. I, this last week, saw a video of two brothers opening Christmas presents. The older brother gets an iPad. He's super excited about it. But I want you to see how the younger brother responds. He's on the left side of your screen, so watch this.
you may not have fallen on your face, but who hasn't felt that before? You desire and you don't have, and so you covet. And it's funny to see kids do that, but it's sad to think that at times we never grow out of that behavior. We just get better at masking it. What begins as a desire for something quickly can become someone else has something I want, and they become a threat to my happiness. Envy can be so dangerous in human relationships. We see it throughout the Bible. Isaac envied Esau's inheritance, so he steals it from him. Rachel envied Leah's children, so she had her husband Jacob sleep with her maidservant to produce more kids. Joseph's brothers envied his status with their father, so they kidnap him and they throw him into a well and they sell him into slavery. James was able to see beyond the circumstances that these people were struggling with and what they were fighting over because they craved power. They craved influence. They wanted to be right. They wanted to be in control. Their hearts were filled with envy. So friends, are you willing to look at your own heart this morning? I know I can find sometimes this stuff in my own heart. I get frustrated because another person is more talented or more successful or, or has more stuff than I do. And then after James diagnoses their envy and their covetousness, he goes deeper and he explains why. In verse two and three, he says, you do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Boy, does that describe my prayer life at times. You don't have because you don't ask God. You think, well, I don't want to bother him. It's not that big a deal. Or you think, well, you know what? I can solve this on my own. I don't need to involve God. Or you bring God into the current situation and deep down when you think about it, it's really so you can just get what you want. And James uses that phrase, that you may spend what you can get on your pleasures. Jesus talks about the same thing when he tells about the story of the lost son. He said the father has two sons. One of them goes to his father and says, can I have my share? give me my share of my inheritance? Why? It says, so that he can go out and spend it all on himself. So James is saying, the problem is not just these unmet desires, this envy, this covetousness. The problem is, is that deep down, oftentimes your life is so much just about you. And sometimes I think we as Christians can assume that because we profess belief in God or we attend church, that everything inside of us must be good. When in fact, if we're brave enough to admit it, at times we only love God to the degree that we, God gives us what we want. Or we really only want to be as faithful as we, we, we think he's faithful to us. God, if you'll help me be successful, then I'll be faithful. If you give me that relationship I've been longing for, then I'll be faithful. You give me that security or that comfort that I desire, I'll commit to following you. We've all thought, thought those things because at times our world revolves around us. And so James is asking the question, are you just looking out for yourself? As you think about this conflict or this problem that you're having, are you really just looking out for you? And if that isn't enough, James cuts even closer to the heart. He says in verse four, you adulterous people. That seems harsh. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend with the world becomes an enemy of God. Let's unpack that a little bit. I grew up in church hearing that friendship with the world meant certain kind of taboo sins, like, you know, drinking or associating with the wrong people or premarital sex. But James is not saying that in order for your life to be right, you have to just avoid a few taboo sins. James is saying that you need to identify what matters most to you. Let me illustrate this real quickly. Picture, if you would, in your head, 
uh, a target, three concentric circles. Think of the target logo. On the outer circle, you have these peripheral concerns for your life. The day-to-day chores and the errands you run. The things you have to do each day. You have to do your homework or uh, you know, go shopping or mow the grass or take the shower or get the kids to school or answer your emails. Those are peripheral concerns going on in your life. Beneath that level, we, we have what we might call primary concerns. Deeper things, stuff like your career and your family and your relationships and your health. And then beneath that at the core, in the bullseye, the part that matters most. And James is saying, in that core, you can only have one thing. And to be honest, at times for me, it feels like God and something else. I'll put God there, but God and my my success, or God and my future, God and my comfort, or God and my security. And James is saying, no, 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 no. Only one thing goes in that core place. It's either God or something else. For you, it might be, you know, what matters most is relational fulfillment or your career or how you're seen in the eyes of others or your sense of comfort or security. And these are not bad concerns. They're primary concerns. They're primary level concerns. But when it comes to what matters most, the Bible calls them idols. Idols aren't just little gold statues (laughs) that you bow down and worship. Idols are anything that you place in that core spot that's supposed to matter only to God. Anything that's a God substitute. Anything that you would say, you know what, Pastor John, that matters most to me. You see this little text here, James is saying beneath the conflict, beneath the envy, beneath the motivation for self-gratification, James is saying that the main problem is that God may not be at the center of your life. You may think it is because, you know, I go to church and I do a bunch of good stuff, but when it comes down to it, God does not matter most. And when we live our lives this way, we become disoriented. James is saying we either don't pray or we don't involve God, or when we do, it's all about ourselves. And then the desire for more comes out in all sorts of distorted ways, with conflict and with envy and with fighting. I mean, if James was just interested in resolving a few conflicts in the church, he could have given some insights. He could have said, here's a few conflict resolution strategies. But he doesn't. He goes so much deeper. He cuts to the core of who we are. And so the question for us is simply this. What's at the center of your life? Honestly, if you did answer that question right here this morning, what's at the center of your life? When you look at how you behave, when you say, this is what I believe, is God at the center where he needs to be? And to recognize that is huge. But that's just part of the solution. What's even worse is, is when we recognize that If God's not there, you and I can't fix it. James is saying you have a heart problem, you have a soul problem, and you can't fix it on your own. When you have desires you can't control or self-gratification you can't let go of or you put anything other than God at the center, it's what the Bible calls sin. And it's a word that gets misunderstood about misbehavior or immorality, but sin is realizing God's not at the center. I'm my own biggest problem. Listen to how the Apostle Paul wrote about sin in Romans 7. He says this, So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. That's inside the heart of the greatest leader of the early church, Paul. And then in verse 24, he says, What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me? 
from this body that's subject to death. Paul is wrestling. I'm wretched. I can't solve my own biggest problems. But then Paul bursts into gratitude. He said, thanks be to God who delivers me through Christ Jesus our Lord. Thanks be to God. When your life is focused around yourself, who can solve it? Jesus can. Jesus can solve your biggest problem. And James is laying it on here pretty thick. He's saying we have conflict, and we have envy that's motivated by self. Beneath that, we're adulterous people living, in odds, living at odds with God because we don't trust him with what matters most. But then verse six, James says the same thing. But he gives us more grace. <laughs> and then he quotes Proverbs three. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor or gives grace to the humble. The answer is God's grace. God gives us more grace. Grace. The power to do what you cannot do for yourself. Grace. Another chance after a long list of second chances. Grace. Forgiveness from freedom. Forgiveness and freedom from shame and guilt that you can't escape on your own. If you're here this morning and you're wondering, what is this Jesus thing all about? This is it. That's why Jesus died, to offer grace for all. If you're an atheist, there's grace for you. If you're a skeptic, there's grace for you. If you've been an absentee parent, there's grace for you. If you've been a difficult kid, there's grace for you. If you've hurt somebody really badly, there's grace for you. If you've been unfaithful in your marriage, there's grace for you. If your life seems to revolve all around you, guess what? There's grace for you. Some people might think, well, gosh, Pastor John, this kind of makes it sound too easy. Just the bar's too low. Grace doesn't lower the bar. It simply clarifies who's holding it. Jesus is holding the bar, not you, not me, not the world, not anybody else. Salvation, it says, is by no other name. It's up to him whether he wants to be merciful or judgmental. And what does Jesus do? He offers us grace. It's amazing. This is not a feelings conversation. This is a problem-solving conversation. And our biggest problem is we have something in the place of God and we need his grace. And then the second biggest problem is, is how do we receive it? James makes it pretty crystal clear here. He says only one way, one posture. You humble yourself. He cites that ancient text and says, God opposes the proud. He stands against those who would say, I'm fine by myself. I can do this on my own. But he gives grace to the humble, to the broken, to the ones who know I can't solve this on my own. When you humble yourself and you let go of that pride and you don't worry about what other people think, God meets us there with his grace. It sounds easy, but it takes humility. Years ago, I was on a mission trip in Brazil. We were in a city park in downtown Rio de Janeiro. We were doing some dramas and sharing some testimonies during a lunch hour at the city park. As we're there, different people are gathering to see what's going on, and quite a crowd gathered together. This one particular man caught my eye because he was so natally dressed. <laughs> it was pretty easy to see that he was a businessman. He was passing through the city park. Probably just stopped to see what was going on. You could tell by the way he was dressed, he was successful. <laughs> His life was all put together. And this thought ran through my mind. I thought, whoa, there's a guy that doesn't think he needs God. 
That's a judgment I put on him. And I remember clearly that day, the dramas went okay. They were nothing to write home about. The team member who shared about God was average at best. And I was pretty sure that this businessman was not interested. We, we closed our program with some kids from a local church that were with us. And they sang this great song in Portuguese about what it means to be a part of God's family. And at the end of the song, at the big crescendo, the kids would go out in the audience and just simply hold out their hand. And if the person grabbed it, they would walk them back into the circle, giving this great visual picture of what it meant to kind of come and join God's family. Well, this little girl went up to this businessman. <laughs> I was sure he was going to blow her off. He grabbed her hand, and as he walked into the circle, tears started, tears started streaming down his face. Right there in that city square, probably around people that knew him for who he was, he gets on his knees. And he kneels down, and he humbles himself. Kind of like that Red Red story that we heard earlier. And he gives himself to God, realizing, I can't do this on my own. And I remember tears welling up in my eyes, thinking, God, you are incredible. The only way to receive the grace of Jesus Christ is not by trying harder. It's not by trying to be better or really moral. It's not by going to church and doing more religious activity. It's by being humble enough to kneel down, say, God, I need your grace. No matter what you've done, there's grace and there's redemption. Charles Spurgeon has this wonderful quote, nothing teaches us about the preciousness of the creator as much as when we learn the emptiness of everything else. Sometimes we go through struggles, struggles and trials and they empty us of everything else and that can either draw us to God or push us away from him. You're all very familiar with my story that five years ago I lost my wife to cancer. And I remember the emptiness that I felt. And nothing teaches you more about the preciousness of who God is. Let's pray. Hey, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed listening to this message and you'd like to join us in reaching others by partnering with us today, you can give at RedeemerMN.org slash give. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button so that you don't miss a single message.